Hey everyone, I'm Chris, and welcome back to season three of the Superpowers Podcast Show. Have you ever asked yourself, what is your superpower? Everyone has a superpower, but most people just don't know what it is. And that's why we're here to uncover it. This podcast will not only share what our guests' unique superpowers are, but also how it helped them both professionally and personally. Superpowers, what's yours? Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Superpowers Podcast. We are on season three, episode four today with uh, a really awesome guest, exciting guest, longtime friend, Adam Singolda, the founder and CEO of Tabula. Welcome, Adam. And where are you? Where are you calling in from today? Thanks, Chris, for having me. Uh, this is so much fun. Uh, well, I'm calling in from my New Jersey Tenafly home. You know, I moved from the city to New Jersey, I was able to convince my wife. And now I'm, I'm in my Lego room because when you move to New Jersey, you get this extra room you can, you can build Legos in. And so that's, you know, you can, you, you can see it because you're listening to the podcast, but behind me, you have Star Wars, you have the piano, Lego, a bunch of really fun Legos that I'm building myself and with my kids. Couple of questions. One, how come we weren't able to recruit you out to Westchester? You went, you went to the dirty south of New Jersey. What, why can I get you up near me? Any story on the on the New Jersey adventure? Uh, we went to Westchester to see some places, and we actually we lost. Like, I mean, we tried to get a few places, but it was so competitive. It was in, in the pandemic, if you remember. Yeah. Back then, you know, you would see a place, and by the time you went, you came home, it was gone. And then we kind of liked the fact that you know, Tenafly. He's low key, you know, just to be anyone. It's like a yeah. uh, t-shirt, a uh, guy in a t-shirt yeah. up at town. So it was nice, ca- nice, ca- nice casual vibes. No, that's great. You're, you're one of many people obviously have, uh, with, with families that have made the, the switch and transformation from city to, to, to some, some suburb, but I'm sure you're in the city quite a bit. We got to just touch base on the Lego cause you brought it up. I, I think you're you're well known and notorious for Lego mass Lego master. Your office in the city in Flatiron, if I'm not mistaken, has tons of Legos. My kids, two boys, you know, many kids grow up with Legos. But let's just let's jump off there. What? How old were you? Where? When did the Lego sort of uh, obsessive and love start? And you're you know you're you're a young handsome man. That will continue, seems to be, will continue to do Legos for the rest of his life. But where did that start? And, and also, Adam, what does, it, what does it give you? What does it offer you? I, I always wanted Lego as a kid. My parents actually couldn't really afford all the toys I wanted. I wanted Legos. I wanted Transformers when it came out. Um, and I guess a few years after it came out, you know, back in Israel. And it was, a, it was expensive. It wasn't, it was an international toy. So actually, I got the lookalike, lookalike Transformers, lookalike Legos. That's what I had growing up, which I loved. And I built things and I played with them all the time. And it was also kind of my, my early stages of loving superheroes, which obviously you're connected to. But the whole notion of doing more than the obvious, just doing the impossible, I, was, I started liking that early on. And then I got to rediscover Lego later in life. I actually read this article about some partnerships they've done. And I was, I really got kind of um, curious about going back to my childhood, but I bought my first Legos probably 10 or 15 years ago after not playing with it for a long time. 
And, and since then, I, I really start making this almost part of my life. And the reason is, I think, especially for people like us, you and me, there are so fast lane emails always on, you know, connected digital. There's something really meditating about doing something with your hands, just sit down, not do something on the speed in the moment. So for me, that's, you know, that's playing piano, that's playing Lego, being with my kids, doing all of them together. So, and I really like it. I do it daily at this point. And I feel like it's a meditation for me. I like building things. It's yeah. And it looks like I'm looking over your shoulder. I mean, you're, you're happy to work on a project for weeks or months. I mean, there's no timeline as far as when these things have to get accomplished, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the Star Destroyer of, of, of Lego, you know, Star Wars probably took me a few to build. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's over 7,000 pieces. Are you in Lego clubs? Like, are you known amongst other Lego builders as like, you know, are you in the Lego mafia? Are you, really, you know? I, I was never invited, you know, to any Lego mafia. I mean, it's very disappointing. I did host Julia, the CMO of Lego at our annual event last year, just before the pandemic. And she was incredible. And I told her, you know, all of us at Tabula, we were over a thousand people then, we're almost 2,000 people now. We're all curious about the journey of Lego and, and all the great things you do. But I told her, you should know there, I have so many questions for you, for me personally. And, and uh, it was so much fun. So Lego keep um, asking me if they can use my pictures that I post on social under magazine. So I don't know if they actually do it, but I always say yes, of course. And uh, at that moment, what, what stage of that keynote did everyone realize that while there were a thousand people listening, they began to realize that it wasn't for them. You actually would have preferred to have been at like an intimate dinner one-on-one. -on -one <laughs> a second into it, when I put pictures of me and my Legos on, on a big screen, it was obvious this was really about me and not everyone. But it's okay. I mean, I matter too, you know. It's, it's, it's important that we all share our passions. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Adam, I know you obviously in the, the industry knows you as a founder and executive, somebody that's been literally brick by brick. Yes, I like what I did there. No pun. Built in Tabola over the years and most recently have had a very exciting event and in, in going public. Let's go a little uh, a different direction here and just kick off with what is the business, the problem that you guys have solved for and solving for, and then a little bit about the most recent, what probably feels like the lifelong dream that, that you just accomplished a few months ago. Let's, let's kick off there if that's cool. Yeah. So I, I started Tabula 14 years ago with a vision to help people discover things that they may like, but never knew existed. Uh, think of us like a search engine, but in reverse, instead of searching for things you like, what happens when you have no idea what you're supposed to be reading next, watching, buying next? So we, you know, we, we imagine sort of a future that is all personalized, that wherever you go and whatever you interact with, it says you may like, and trying to predict those things that you may like to do next. And the truth is that if you discover things that you love, it really, you can make an amazing impact on your life. You, for me, Lego, right? Like rediscover Lego. We just talked about that. It was actually a big deal for me because now I love it so much. But what if I never rediscovered Lego when I did? So that is the vision, the reason we exist. Specifically, we operate in the open web. Open web is, is where publishers like, you know, NBC and Bloomberg and the Today Show and many others exist and operate. It's a $60 billion space, the open web, the internet, what we open in a browser, uh, apps we have on our phone. It's all of those companies who exist outside of Google and Facebook and Amazon. We kind of focus only on that. And what we're trying to do is help businesses, advertisers, small businesses to big ones to reach those uh, publishers in the open web on the one side and succeed. And on the other side of our business, we're trying to work with publishers 
I, you know, like I mentioned, you said today and, and the independent in the UK and Sanke in Japan and all these amazing publishers that we love so they can grow and thrive. So journalism succeeds and the open web is strong. That's what we do. That's why we exist. I've been doing this for, you know, over a decade. I'm not sure where you want to take this, you know, in terms of where we are now, but obviously we had a big event on June 30th when we took Tabula Public, a moment I never actually imagined, you know, Tabula is my first job. So I, I never really built Tabula for any of those moments and I never really saw it coming. And only recently over the last few years, we really prepared ourselves to go public and that was really emotional and amazing to do that. And now we're public on the other side of it, you know, we're guiding next year to generate $1.7 billion in revenue. Fantastic. And, you know, it's just, it's madness to see our size, but then you're also, you know, so you're also reminded that you're still a small fraction of the, the, the market. And, you know, if you look at Google and Facebook and Amazon, they're so bigger, but the world deserves an open web, great company that to focus on our partners. Have you been told that it feels as though from when you started, this is just one man's opinion and often terrible opinions and thoughts on this end, but have you felt that from where you started when Facebook was at its peak and, you know, Google is Google and now you have this sort of separate entity, which is non-walled garden. It, it made sense to some level, but I recall just growing up in ad tech and media, just the, the large dependency uh, on Facebook at that height where all the dollars got plowed there. So here you are as kind of alternative channel. Now, fast forward 14 years later and looking at the challenges Facebook has had endlessly, you know, week in and week out, it feels like. And obviously we understand what those conditions are and Google, everything from privacy to, you know, fake news and things like that. Has your market been even sort of established and, and, and sort of created and, and desired more now than it was when you were selling your business or pitching your business years ago? It almost feels like the, the conditions are more favorable to you than they ever were. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, you have to, first of all, be humble about the fact that Facebook and Google and Amazon are incredible execution machines, you know, with very strong talent and they're very successful. And so for me, you know, the market is more established now. People speak about, my mom speaking about privacy, right? The fact any person on the planet understands privacy, they have this intuition that they wouldn't buy a Facebook camera to their house because it's a bit creepy. Right. The fact you have this gut feeling and you have this intuition means that topics like privacy and open web became mass market. It's no longer something that ad tech people or executives speak about. It's something that anybody cares about. So I do think it's more established. Saying that the challenge is not any one step, you know, easier because again, they're great companies. The space is big and there's a lot to do. It's global. So for me, it's a lot of hard work and you have to keep doing the hard work. But I do think the space is more established. People understand what Facebook and social risks and the social dilemma mean. And that didn't happen 10 years ago. Right. And I mean, also in growing up in the ad tech space since 99, so many companies have good outcomes. Many don't survive. There's only a handful of stories like yours and Trade Desk, for example, that hit a public market and kind of reach this sort of incredible scale and, and, and hit billions. And by the way, I don't even think the term unicorn is that interesting anymore because there are so many unicorns. Any sort of key takeaways in regards to how and why Tabula has been able to rise to the occasion and become one of those very, very few small percentage of companies that have created such an impact and value creation for shareholders, investors, employees. Again, I, I know it's a, that's a long one, but if you had to unpack it in a couple of points, could you do that? 
if I was listening to this podcast and I was asking myself, you know, some of those things that you probably want to consider as you're embarking that journey of, of starting your company, one is that you need to um, prepare to do something for a very long time because it takes longer time to build a company these days than it used to be maybe 15 years ago. And you always have to ask yourself, if I told you that it's not going to work in 10 years, would you still do it? And that's the first one. The second one is that everything is going to change around you so many times. And then you should really try to ask yourself, who do you need to surround yourself with? And what's the type of culture you want to establish early, early on so that you can navigate those changes and beat your competition and grow? Because at the end of the day, um, nobody cares you were first. It's completely emotional to think that you deserve to win because you did something first. And if you're telling yourself that, you should not start the company. But being the best is the only thing that matters. We just mentioned Facebook and Google and Amazon. By the way, none of them was first. Yeah. Literally, yeah. they were all followers of other people's ideas, but they did it so much better. Yeah. So the second thing is culture and people in execution, to me, is your true innovation. People is, in your, is your innovation. If you're prepared for the long ride and you invest in, in culture and people that is authentic to you, and I'm not saying... I mean, I think what we do is special to us and it works for us. And I think you have a good chance of getting going. Right. Were there any points in that story that maybe you haven't shared publicly or um, that maybe we're not going to make this or, you know, maybe it was the market softened or you lost key members or maybe, you know, whatever it was, were there any points where you said, wow, this doesn't look too positive and, and how did you get, how did you kind of get through that? So you know, for reference, I started in 2007 and uh, for the first four and a half years, all the way to 2012, we were generating no revenue. I almost shut down Tabula three times during that time frame. It's interesting because I think part of why I kept on going beyond my passion for the business and the love for the team uh, and my partners and the industry and all those things is because it was also my first job and I was naive in thinking that this must be normal. I wonder if I was experienced going back in time. And I told the board, by the way, it's been year three and nothing is happening, but I'm still believing and it's going to happen. Would I, would I have been as convinced and pure? I wonder, I will never know the answer to that. But I was actually doing it for the first time. I was convinced this, is must, this must be the way it's supposed to go. But there were always, you know, difficult moments. One that I really remember was I flew to Sand Hill Road in uh, November of 2011. Sand Hill Road, for those who may not know, is this place in the West Coast where a lot of VCs and investors reside in one place. So it's kind of convenient. You go, you park your car or Uber, and you can meet 30, 40, 50 investors, which is great. And they're some of the most in amazing investors in the world. So I was doing that for the first time. And it's, a, you know, it's an interesting experience. Everything looks the same. You know, it's like a bunch of buildings. It's like Alice in Wonderland. You open one door, you meet an investor, you close the door, you meet another one. And I did that for a few days. And uh, I met 30 investors and they all said no. <laughs> After four and a half years of me doing this. Do you have a list of their names that you can share um, on the show? <laughs> I, uh, I have the list. In fact, by the way, in 2014, two years after when Tabula moved from no revenue to $206 million in 2014, I went back. Fidelity led the round. And I went back to meet all of them again. Most of them, actually, not all of them, but most of them I met again in San Hill Road. I've only been in San Hill Road twice. Yeah. In 2010 and in 2014 again. And I raised money from none of them, but I, I wanted them 
to see the new tabula. It was important for me to like see them again. I needed to do this for myself in, in me. I know that Sand Hill Road journey very well, and I've been uh, denied many, many times there as well. And I think times have changed a lot. Luckily, there's a lot of venture you know, spread across the country, in particular in New York. So you don't need that. But next generation founders, I think, can rely on more, more capital in their backyard. Just so you know, I would not invest in myself either if I were them. I mean, first-time founder, Israeli, accent, you know, no experience. It made sense to not do it. I'm not holding it against them. I would probably not invest in myself either. But it was a different time, you're right. Right now, there's a lot of money out there and there's a lot of smart money and different funds and, you know, different founder-led firms and different type of things. So times have definitely changed. Adam, I want to talk about uh, Israel. Where were you um, born? Uh, just a little bit of a picture of your, of your childhood. And, and also, I do think the military experience, I'd like to, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that. I think, you know, those that have worked with Israeli tech companies, I think appreciate, understand the DNA of, you know, engineering and software, also the location of where the country and the city sits as it relates to imminent danger and how that sort of feeds the culture. I know that because, you know, as you know, I worked with Iron Source for a couple of years. So I got a chance to go to Tel Aviv about seven times over two years. So I grew up in a small town south of Tel Aviv, kind of like in Queens, like outside of the city, the main city, like probably like 20, 30 minutes away. And um, it was great, you know, very like neighborhood type, simple. My, my mom uh, was working in insurance. My dad is a guitar player. So I had this like really interesting um, arts and science type of view, uh, a lot of passion and music and that type of stuff. And my mom is a real chief. She's incredible. We're very close. And she kind of managed the house. And my dad was this artist who didn't know the price of milk, you know, and, and that was my yin, yin and yang type of in the house. And that was a good setup for, you know, I guess, later stages in my life. I think growing up in Israel, there are a few things that are unique, you know, uh, mandatory service, everybody goes. I did uh, almost seven years, three years is mandatory. I spent almost seven years in this the Israeli version of NSA, the encryption unit of Israel here. But what do you have NSA here in the US? So that was a great experience because what happens is at a very young age, you get this humongous amount of responsibility and it's a very flat, you know, you have your colleagues next to you, everybody looks the same, you know, everybody wears green and uh, you just have to make it work. My first project as an 18-year-old kid, and I was an engineer already because I studied, I mean, I was coding at home, was to develop the first protected phone for the general. I was 18 years old or something like that. Right? Incredible. Think about any other world. What do you do when you're 18 and a half? Yeah. You're lifeguarding or, you know, drinking beers at the golf course or something. You're not doing that. Right. So, so that was amazing. Yeah. It, was, it was literally amazing. You, you know, I didn't want to go home. I was like so obsessed with keep on working hard. I thought I met, you know, smart people before joining the army. And then I joined my unit and I saw people that were from the future. It was so smart. I was amazed by how much intelligence, you know, can be all around the country because, you know, they bring people from all over the country. And I never met people from all over the country. So that was great. And then, you know, you learn a lot, you make a lot of mistakes, but that's allowed. Adam, just, just listen. I mean, you're talking about going to the military as a positive experience. And I would think that a lot of people in maybe other parts of Europe or, you know, whatnot, it's, oh, I got to tick that box. I got to do that. I'm not sensing that that was your experience. This is something that you, you really appreciated and shaped you. 
I never lived in any other country but Israel, you know, until I moved to America as part of Tabula. I only know what it's like to grow up in a country where it's very important to have, you know, a service that protects the country across multiple fronts. And when you grow up in Israel, you look forward to joining the army. I mean, it's, it's an, you, you're actually trying to be the best you can. So you get recruited to, recruited to a place who can create the most amount of value. That's the only thing I know. And then, and I, you know, being on the other side of it, I think it was an amazing experience because it keeps you, it's like uh, Kendrick Lamar, you have to sit down and be humble. And I don't know how to easily recreate that for kids that, you know, and again, I'm not saying it's the only experience, but it's one experience that's very unique, you know? I, I've always been wanted to ask this question, not so much to you, but just friends that are from, from Israel. Where does the directness come from? <laughs> Where does the level of get shit done? I mean, like now that I'm in venture, Adam, and, you know, we see, you know, two new companies a day pitch us, right? When the Israeli one comes in, I'm like, oh, here we go. Like, I, I, I see the name and it's Tomer, it's Omer, okay. And, and it's, you know, they pitch and then I respond. And then, you know, two seconds later, it's like, are you available tomorrow? Or, you know, three o'clock and then it's the next day. And, you know, I'm actually think they're going to be at my yard. I mean, they find my home telephone number. Of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, I can accept it and tolerate it because that's what I know from my experience. Where does that come from? I think that there's this sense of, Everything is possible when you grow up in Israel. You know, you can work on things that can, as a small country of less than 10 million people, you know, you can be the, one of the most innovative countries in the world. You can build technologies that impact people's lives, that can, you know, cooperate with other countries. And it's just, I mean, it's a small country. It's against all odds type of story. And that's when you grow up in that, in that story, you have this sense in you that everything is possible. And that's why, you know, the, um, the startup, it's called Startup Nation, right? People want to start up things across every vertical in Israel. They want to change the world across so many things. Sometimes Israelis think too much, you know, is possible. But in general, I think it stems from the fact that you grow up feeling that everything is possible. It's a very diverse country. People from, you know, from Europe and, and Morocco and like all over the world yeah. over the years that came to Israel. So you have these diverse backgrounds, everything is possible. The army as a normalizing stage for people, wherever you came into, you all go through the same process. Something is happening there that makes you feel, you know, feel that it can be done. You know, I think that helps people, people like you and hope you'll invest in them. And often we do. And I'm not just saying this because we know each other, but you strike me of having the very sort of unique blend of getting shit done being aggressive, but in a gentler way. It's almost like you understand the culture over here as well. Kind of shifting gears before we do, Adam, fair to say though, that the majority, the way I've always understood it, but I'm just curious, the majority of those prominent Israeli tech companies that, you know, that have a market, they need to leave Tel Aviv and they need to leave Israel specifically because of the size of the market, because it's 10 million people versus coming you know, over here, it's you know, 300 million plus. I guess, is that reality that the engineering and the tech DNA is incredible, that everyone knows that, but from a commercial perspective and from a revenue and a growth perspective, you got to come here. Is that right? I think it depends. I mean, look at companies like Wix, right? It's a consumer company. It's one of the most successful companies out of Israel. CEO lives in Israel. Look at Iron Source, which you know very well. Iron CEO lives in Israel and it's one of the most 
successful stores out of Israel. Checkpoint, you know, CEO lives in Israel. I think it depends on your market. I mean, if you, look, if you think about Taboola as an example, when we work with publishers and advertisers, the capital of the open web is in New York. Yeah. I mean, for me, being in New York was always my personal dream. I always wanted to be in New York and experience that, but it, but it was also important for my business. So I think it depends on your business. Yeah. Uh, but you should, be, you should be wherever you're most needed. Right. But that makes sense. Did you know at an early point in life that kind of entrepreneurship and being a founder was something that you were going to gravitate to? Or maybe your parents would say if they were on the show that everyone knows from Adam's childhood that this is what he was going to be doing. I was constantly pitching my parents and my parents' friends for ideas that I had. I was never interviewed by anyone. I always wanted to do things. And then you know, my mom bought, bought me uh, a cellular modem when I was young so I can build apps and software on my home computer as a kid. So I can build software that connects with mobile devices when mobile was just coming into Israel. And I was always trying to do things. And I was really excited when it was working. And I was lucky because I think when you're an engineer, it's kind of like a modern era sculpture. Like, you know, right. you can build things on your own. You don't need anyone. You don't need money. You don't need help. You could just be at home and geek it out. Right. So it was fun. And I did it all the time. And even in non-tech things, I always had ideas. I still do always have ideas. I think once and it's, it's fun to, uh, to trying to make things. Right. Well, you're proving that very well. Um, were there any interesting learnings or roadblocks as far as, you know, moving here and setting up your business operation or was it, you know, did you seem to navigate that next stage? Okay. The biggest mistake I made when I came to New York, I was so starstruck by the city and all the amazing people that were here ex-Googlers, ex-this, ex-that. And, you know, I thought if they were so successful, they could be so successful at Tabula. Early on when I came here, I was trying to think of people that can join Tabula, help Tabula, advise Tabula, because their resume was very successful. The way I saw it is, um, as you know, in my 20s. And when I made decisions based on fame, more often than not, I was wrong. And it took me years to understand myself and learn about that that the truth is that um, when you do something again for 10 years with anyone, what you did before is so much less relevant versus what you can do in the future. And but it took me years to understand and I, I needed different types of people to surround myself with that they had more of, um, you know, their character features were more in line to each other, that they choose me and I choose them versus they were successful and famous. And that's why I wanted so much. So that was probably my first, you know, or one of the mistakes I made coming into the big city. Would you say, you know, similar to, to building Lego and putting pieces together, that sounds like a bit of a journey in regards to understanding the puzzle, specifically on the team, right? And how do you get those team members in place and working together? I imagine there was some, some trial and error there, but do you have some core members that have been with you since conception? Yeah, so my management team, many of us have been together for a decade. I still have the first people who joined Tabula when I started. What, one of the guys who, his name is Alon, or, or Wuti, you know, they, we were on the same team in the army. They're still with me now. They came to the IPO. I mean, many of us, Eyal, they flew in for the IPO because we've been together for over, over a decade. My head of engineering replaced me in my unit. He's still with me now, Aviv. It's so hard to churn talent and to... Not only it takes time to find new people, but then to just align and make mistakes together. You know, the experience of all the mistakes we've done early on and still do, 
carries so much weight into how we can execute better than other companies because we've, we've been doing this for enough time. We know each other. It's like marriage. You know, you have good days and bad days, but net, net, it's positive. Yeah. So for me, that means so much. I mean, people, that's why I go back to the advice I, I told you earlier. And I look around, I see people that have been with me for a long time. And I look around, I see people that have done things at the Bura they've never done before. My CFO, it's his first time being a public CFO. Heck, it's his first time being a CFO in general. And he's amazing at it. You know, my head of revenue, which is over a billion dollars, next to $1.7 billion in revenue, before Tabula was a chef. He used to cook before Tabula, <laughs> right? And now, and now he's, you know, very good at what he does. I think I'm right that people and the right people win versus experience or fame. Well, this almost is leading into the superpowers component of our show and what we like to uncover. And we all know the most successful companies are, are driven by people, certainly believe that people are our greatest assets. What do you think your team, those that have been working with you for many years now through this journey, ups and downs and the IPO, what do you think they would say? How would they sort of look at your superpower? Yeah, I wonder what they would say. That's a good question. Maybe they would say I'm obsessed, but um, I think I learned faster. I like the word humble and I like the word empathy and I like those softer words in the world of business because it allows you to expose yourself. It allows you to uh, absorb more and eventually make better decisions. It's also why I like the topic of diversity because not only I think it's the right thing to do to build a diverse leadership and workforce and, and future, but also what I see at Tabula, which I want to prove to the world is that when you have a diverse, you know, company, you have better conversations, you have better collaborations and you learn faster and learning faster is equals execution. And I look at even, I like always to look back at great stories that I love. I look at Netflix, you know, you look at a company that, I mean, Reed was trying to sell Netflix to Blockbuster for $50 million and failed. Can you imagine him calling his wife that moment when he called his wife and told her, honey, you can't believe what a horrible day I had today. Blockbuster said no to my $50 million, you know, this couple of them. And I failed in, I failed you. Like we're not, I'm not coming home successfully in selling Netflix for $50 million. And then he reinvented DVDs with digital. He reinvented digital with, with original content. It's like, and it keeps going. And nothing is harder than reinventing yourself. Yeah. You know? Or creating a category, you could argue. Creating a market, creating a category, extremely hard. And all of this goes back to, um, I think, learning. So I, I do think that, you know, being obsessed about learning. So maybe it's combining those two things. Well, that, that's one thing, Adam, that I know about you personally. And that was part of my question about the Israeli side of you is that you have always, always come across as kind and nice. And I love the word empathy because that kind of expresses the ability to have social awareness, you know, EQ, IQ, I'd say that sort of street smart element is way more valuable than, you know, perhaps a Harvard degree. Maybe that's debatable, but I think it's a very important because there's the ability to sort of attract talent. There's the ability to work with customers, but humble is key. Were you always like that? Or did, did you grow to be that executive? I don't think I change a lot, to be honest. I, I think, I, you know, I, I was lucky to grow up in a house where my dad was building his career from working in a, you know, a steel factory to becoming a famous guitar player in Israel, still being the same person, you know, and my mom and dad being together for, you know, 40 years. So seeing marriage and partnership and seeing all those dynamics, I think 
and now being a parent, I can tell you, and you know this for yourself, obviously being a great family man yourself is you can tell people whatever you want, but eventually they see what you do and that drives uh, behavior change more than anything. Yeah. I think you're very lucky if you grow up and for me, grew up in, in a house with music and, and partnership and relationship. And I keep asking myself, how can I do it for my kids? You know? Yeah. No, that's interesting. I haven't heard that on any of our, uh, conversations that just that stable backdrop that you've had with mom and dad and how that's probably influenced even you being a husband. I remember talking to you about kids before you had kids. If, you know, I think most people that know you can sort of feel that energy. What has sort of the fatherhood element brought you in regards to your work, which is another, another child, <laughs> sort of speak? I don't even know who I was before my kids were born. I mean, to be honest, I believe everything that has led me to meet them, I think of my purpose. I always feel like Tabula had to happen so I can meet my kids. So I can move to America, marry, marry an American woman, and eventually, you know, witness them because it's the first time I think I've experienced love at that level, or maybe it's the first love. It's just amazing. And to me, life is all about love and passion and all those things, which is why I never want to wake up and walk to work. I want to wake up and run to work. You know? Amazing. So, so it all goes around the same things. And I, I think about, you know, how do you do something for so long? I mean, it's always about moments. You know, it's about for me, how do I do the bath, you know, bath my kids every day, one hour here, one hour. I don't need two weeks vacation. I don't need, you know, half a day here. I just need moments. And I try to bring it to Tabula. I try to expose those feelings and, and learnings that I have at home to be part of our culture, you know. So Adam, on that note, I feel like I just have to ask, with, with coming out of the pandemic, what has it taught you? How has it shaped your culture as it relates to those that have families uh, and more time with kids and balance? Just a couple words on what has it taught you? I'll say that going back to empathy, when March 15th happened and the world collapsed, it was a very scary night because I went to sleep and I woke up and everything changed. If you remember that moment. I'll never, never forget it. Just like September 11th, you don't forget those. No. That date is, you know, engraved in my head forever. And, and I, you know, that was, I'm going back to how would that affect people? Some people had kids, some people had small apartments, some people were away, some people that we would not be, would not be able to see their families for a long time. And the first thing we did was you just, uh, I remember I talked to my team, my leadership, and I said, we should start a weekly all hands. We used to have a quarterly all hands. And said, so let's start talking to our people once a week. We have offices in 18 countries. And my team said, what the hell are we going to talk to people every week? And I said, I have no idea. I just literally have no idea what we're going to talk about. But how about we just talk to each other for one hour a week forever? And we've been doing that since March 15th. And we've learned so much about what people need and how we can address it and make people's lives just a little bit more relaxed, more, more normal, more healthy. It brought our people together more than ever been in the office, which people on our survey said they feel closer to leadership more than they ever have. And they haven't seen us. So many people Incredible. going to Bula never met us. And, and, and I just think that you can do so much by just listening to each other and talk to each other and all those things. Personally, I can tell you when I look back, while it was a very weird period and eventually it was a good year and we went public and we bought Connexity, the company we acquired for $800 million and we're we have more server, servers than the Israeli army and we're growing and there's a lot of good juju that is going on. I also feel very you know, lucky. I used to travel 40% of the time. I get to see my kids every day now. 
I'm, I'm happy my wife is not kicking me out, which is a good thing, you know, but I will never, this is priceless. You know, my parents were here last year for six months. I was a teenager. I, I saw my dad and mom every day for six months. So I think, you know, there's all, we have to appreciate also the good things that came with it because it might never come back. Yeah. No, it's well said. And you beat me to the punch. I uh, always remember you hopping on airplanes when we all did. But for me anyway, I, I think I had sort of a, an eye-opening moment which said, what was I doing? Uh, why was I going to San Francisco for two meetings and taking red eyes and all that? But I, you beat me to it. And I, I do think that there's a lot of positive learnings. Before I let you go, Adam, I always think when, when we have listeners come on board and whether they're you know, interested in the company or the person or whatnot, it's a broad question, but just generally speaking for sort of the founder entrepreneur community, or even the operators of media and tech companies, if there's some pieces of advice on sort of how to think about either building today, obviously it's a very different time than 14 years ago when you started. If there's any sort of a few nuggets to share, the younger ones sort of thinking about their next chapter. I go back to um, one establishing that it's never easy. You know, I think sometimes you're seeing people in different stages of their career, of their journey. You should know it's always, it, it's always hard work and it takes time. And, you know, I think if, for me, I always narrow down the answer to love. Like, I think it's like people said, all you need is love in the sense that you have to really love your mission, the people you do it with, your clients or partners. It needs to be something you love so much. So it's worth it because because you can always go and, you know, work for someone else or join someone else. But to do something that, you know, that you start and you, you, you found and you raise money for and all those things, it starts with, I think you have to really love it. And even if you were to do it for the rest of your life type of love. And the second thing is you have to also love yourself and take care of yourself. Because I think people, again, social media and we're seeing these images and we're just so delusional to think that what we see out there, like we have to remember that people tell Facebook, what they wish people thought about themselves, not who they really are. You would never share with Facebook your true issues or challenges or when you're sad. So I think you have to also love yourself, uh, take care of yourself, expose yourself, be with your kids, your friend, be happy, be sad, build Legos, play the piano, make food, whatever, whatever it is for you that makes you happy. Because if you are going to do something for a long time, happiness matters too. So to me, I would say my advice is love as a base for your mission and people you do it with and love for yourself because you matter too. So one of the best answers I think that I, I could have hoped for to end this conversation, Adam, I mean that this could have been answered in sort of a tactical way, but it was more of a broader. And uh, I really appreciate that. There's no question that I think your superpower is humility. It's a social awareness. It's humble. It's empathy. I mean, those are you know, those are four terms that really feed into one thing as, as far as you as a human. And there's no question that it's, I think, paved a lot of, paved the way for you both to be successful as an entrepreneur and, 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 and a father and a husband. And it's nice to see, and I think it's a very good example that you can have all those things. I think historically, it's been delusional to think that, well, you can only be successful if you don't go to your kid's baseball game and you're going to be divorced. So I think I actually may even rip that all apart and say balance. Uh, tough one, but I think this conversation is very in insightful to sort of show how you're able to do so many different things, love at heart, which is fantastic to hear. Adam, thank you so much for joining Superpowers Podcast. Nice to see you um, smiling as always and look forward to seeing you in the city in person soon. But thank you for being here. Thanks for having me.
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode, everyone. New episodes of the Superpowers podcast are released twice a month. So please subscribe and follow us on our website to get notified on future shows. Superpowers, what's yours? This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.